I'm absolutely honoured to be interviewing Dame Polly Curtis. I was just reading through her bio, which is extremely impressive. She was the founding director of the University of Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership and is a director on the board of the Jupiter and Green Jupiter Green Investment Trust. She was also founder director of the Prince of Wales's Business and Sustainability Programme. And in 2016, she was appointed a Dane for Services Sustainability Leadership. We are not stopping there. She is also a member of the judging panel for the Queen's Award for Sustainable Development. And she's also a member of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Independent Commission on Climate and a trustee of a Cambridge past, present and future. With so many achievements, Polly, it's so hard to know where to start, but let's go back to the beginning. When did you decide you wanted to pursue a career in sustainability? Well, Natalie, my career goes back so far that um, sustainability wasn't really a term that many people used. Oh. Indeed, nobody was talking about having a career in sustainability when I first started. Um, I um, was really drawn into, I suppose, more into uh, both environment and human rights issues in the 1980s, a period um, of the 1970s, 1980s, when we had seen a whole range of the most appalling um, both environmental and human rights transgressions, many of them um, uh, where companies lay right at the very heart. So through Three Mile Island, Bhopal, Chernobyl, Exxon Valdez, Brent Spa, whichever way you look, uh, the corporate sector was uh, in causing deep trouble and frankly in deep trouble. Mm. And I was started out from a, a working at the University um, of Cambridge in the 1980s to help companies to, in fact, originally started out to help them really uh, adopt some of the cutting edge technology from the university, but quickly came to realize that the companies that I was talking to and the senior leaders that I was meeting simply had no mechanisms for dealing with these massive challenges that they faced. And so I found myself increasingly drawn into what later in the early 90s became more commonly known as sustainable development with the Earth Summit and the Brunton Commission and slowly found myself um, having worked for more nearly a decade in what would be termed now a sustainability career. Uh, and the concept of sustainability made absolutely compelling sense because it talks about a much more rounded holistic approach to the world where you can't cherry pick environment or social, you have to look at them in an integrated uh, way if you're going to achieve real real sustainable development. Okay, great. Um, that's amazing. Um, and during your career, I imagine you've seen, had lots of experiences and moments which has opened your eyes to the real sustainability challenges that the world still faces. I know you've been working in this um, area for some time, but it's, it's still a, a big issue for us. What's What's really opened your eyes? What's been one experience or moment that you can pinpoint? Well, I think why I was um, so receptive to this whole field actually goes back a lot further than that. I grew up in South Africa, one mm -hmm. of the world's beautiful countries where um, human rights were um, traumatized, if I can put it that way, by apartheid. So I was very, very, um, I was, I think I was seeking some way of uh, addressing um, those issues which had become uh, very sort of core to my um, thinking almost without realizing it. But um, when I came to Cambridge and started looking at ways of working around on the environment, um, I think one of the things which 
And there wasn't a single moment where, which really opened my eyes, I suppose is what I'm really saying. I had that sort of background. And then you come, if you come to Cambridge and you spend time talking to scientists who are not campaigners, they're not business leaders, they're not trying to sell you anything. They are looking at data and evidence and what's really going on in the world. And it doesn't matter which of those scientists you talk to, whether they are climate scientists or environmental scientists or indeed technologists, you get an astonishing sense of what is really going on in the world. Some of it, which is apps and it has, you know, we've been aware of this for decades and decades and yet so little has been done in both social and environmental terms. But then again, you meet technologists who are so amazingly upbeat about what it's possible to achieve. So I think the last 31 years, which is how long I've now been at Cambridge, was a constant um, feeling of kind of looking over a precipice, but also looking up a great um, um, mountain where the summit was a great prize. Mm. So it doesn't work. I've, I mean, I've had, pivotal moments where a particular event has made it feel even more raw but this has been 31 years of of building that sense of um uh, what is going on in the world yeah it's extraordinary okay um tell us a bit about the work that you did with the cambridge institute for sustainability leadership what is that trying to achieve so what it has always sought to achieve, but now does so with a brilliant team of nearly 120 people. When I started, there was um, two people in a sort of broom cupboard in the engineering oh, wow. department. You know, we've grown to the most extraordinary organization now, but our role always has been, and certainly is now, to help develop leadership and solutions for a sustainable economy. So challenging and supporting leaders to look at the evidence that we have available to us in abundance mm -hmm. and make decisions based on the latest and the best science and to build business models that create value, not just for shareholders, which is important, but also long-term value for society and the environment. So we have executive education, graduate education, we do research, we, I say we, I'm still involved in the Institute, but I no longer lead it, but we, there are uh, amazing groups of um, business and policy groups, which are bringing organizations together to develop solutions to some of the most difficult problems that you can't solve on your, on your own. And that Institute now has around 16, 17,000 people in the network all over the world um, who understand now better the need for change and are genuinely inspired to find solutions. That, yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, how have you found? Um, sorry, I'm 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 going off 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 script here, so I'm just trying to think of how to phrase this one. <laughs> um, okay, great. How how have you found the sort of reception from business leaders? Has has that increased a lot recently? Oh yes. I mean, I think certainly when I look back over thirty years, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I'm amazed at how much progress uh, has been made. You know, in those first 10, 15 years, the biggest battle was to persuade people that there was a problem half the time, or if it was not just that there was a problem, but that it was their problem. Mm. Um, what's changed now, I think, is that it's very hard to deny that there is a problem that we all face and all have a part to play in. And so there has been enormous amount of progress and people are not asking why now, they're asking how. And that is, um, that is uh, really important and encouraging. 
But the reality is that um, the, the, the situation, what's going on in the world is changing so fast that um, it's very difficult, I think, for many leaders to work out what to do. They can't use comparison of what was in a previous plan or um, a previous budget. That doesn't give them a clear line of sight as to what they have to do now. So, because there are so many new threats and challenges in front of them. So I'm optimistic that the corporate sector um, is responding and will respond. The jury's out as to whether they will respond fast enough. And mm. by corporate sector, I mean business and the, uh, the finance sector. Mm. Uh, that is, if, I, if I'm left with any um, deep-seated anxiety, it's whether we, we could, we know how to do it, but the question is, will we do it? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, it's great to hear that we are moving on from the why to the how, and that, that's really important. But yeah, now that pace needs to be picked up, doesn't it? Mm. Okay, and in 2015, the Institute launched its Rewiring the Economy Framework, setting out 10 collaborative tasks for business, policy and finance leaders to lay the foundations for a sustainable global economy. Could you tell us a bit more about those and the progress made on them? Yes, I mean, I suppose our starting point was the realisation that if uh, we are going to meet the outcomes in the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the ambition of the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, 197 countries have signed up to that, but if we're going mm. to do it and stay below one and a half degrees of rewarming, we're going to have to almost entirely rethink everything. We're going to have to rethink our energy systems, transform our industrial mm. systems, rebuild infrastructure, transport, agriculture, food systems, consumer behavior, just whichever way you look. Yeah. And, we, and on top of all of that, we're going to have to remove carbon from the atmosphere <laughs> by reforestation, restoring soil, whatever we're going to do. So the task is mammoth, uh, but the reality is that, which in effect does mean rewiring our economy. And the what lies behind our thinking on this is that the three chief actors in the economy that can do and drive that, of course we have consumers and of course we have um, other parts of society, but three chief actors are business, government and finance. And they have very good reason, sound, compelling reason, but they also have what well, many people would argue a moral responsibility for driving that change. Mm. And it is certainly in their enlightened self-interest to do so. And we came to the conclusion, having done a huge consultation with many of the companies and the financial institutions in our organization, that it is possible to identify the structural and the cultural changes in the economy that would enable us to drive up the positive impacts um, that we're seeing out there and um, drive down the negative impacts. And so we took those UN 17 development goals. Mm -hmm. And we condensed them down into six themes, three for, three for environment, climate stability, resource security and healthy ecosystems, and three social themes, basic needs, decent work and human well-being. And then we worked with the companies to um, work out not who would do which in isolation, because they're all things which have to be done in a collaborative spirit, but who would take the lead? So, for example, government takes the lead on measuring the right things and setting the right targets and getting the incentives right and driving 
innovation, whereas the financial institutions primary role is is to invest capital to make sure that capital acts for the long term mm. we price capital according to the true cost of business activities and of course importantly essentially that we innovate financial structures to better serve those outcomes and then of course the companies have their own whole range of things that they need to do aligning their purpose and their strategy and their business models setting their targets measuring and being transparent embedding sustainability so we've come up with these 10 tasks um, and use them as a framework to help companies set their own plans mm -hmm. so we're not telling them what to do or measuring them against it there are many other things we do that does help and guide them as to what to do and how to do it but this framework is simply that it's a framework to say it's not that difficult we can't be so overwhelmed by the enormity of the task that you can't start somewhere. So this has been a really valuable framework for us. And we have, have another framework, which is called uh, rewiring leadership to say, what kind of leadership do you need to take you into that uh, rewired economy? Yeah, I mean, I, when when you started answering that question, I did think, God, it, it really is such an enormous task. You can see why businesses maybe feel overwhelmed, but also, like you said, it's, it's not something we can ignore. We just need businesses to take that action now? I mean, organisations have traditionally had to learn how to function effectively in enormously complex systems. Mm. And just because this is new and it's kind of has so many externalities, uh, it is no, it is not beyond the wit of the, you know, we, these three actors recruit some of the best and the brightest talent into their employment they can sort it, they can get their heads around it. And they are just not fast enough at the moment. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's better to be prepared and going into it that way rather than having to react in a crisis. I think if anything, the past year has taught us that, hasn't it? Yeah, although I have to say we are already in a crisis. We yeah. are facing existential threat. When you look at some of the things that are going on in the, in the uh, not just in climate change, but in and around nature, we are, mm. we are, really at the tipping point of, of whether we're going to we will survive but what we will be left with remains to be seen yeah it's so so scary okay um moving on let's talk a bit about your work on the jupiter green trust can you tell me what you do there and where has progress been made on the trust oh, yes, i'm i love it i'm on the uh, i'm a director of the jupiter green investment trust and it is it's a wonderful uh, company to be involved in. It's small, but it's visionary and ambitious. And it's, I think it's time has come. And I've been involved in one way or another since it was set up in 2006. And it has just been amazing to see that sort of uh, recognition that uh, there was something profoundly important about investing in companies that deliver solutions to sustainability challenges, climate change and the like. And now to see that it's time has come just you know, in the last couple of years and this year in particular. And I think what's exciting for me now is that it's it, although the fundamental principles uh, of the company are still there, it's now starting to position itself to continue obviously to invest in established leaders but actually, uh, it's it's now got this focus on also investing in innovator companies, 
um, companies that, for example, I can think of two examples uh, as a brilliant um, company that is making hydrogen fuel and converting it to clean energy, and another company that's um, investing in uh, green cement manufacturing. These are these kind of small companies are the companies that are going to be the disruptors mm -hmm. of the industries within the, in which they operate, but opportunities to set out um, a pathway for transformational change. Mm. We, we do need incremental change, but some of these industry sector, the old established models need to be challenged and transformed. So those are the innovative companies. And then they have accelerated companies where there's some really well-established proven solutions that now need to go to scale. And I was thinking of an example there um, I've, a company that I've known about for a very long time, but just watching it now, its time has come uh, in this whole, with this, as the concept of the circular economy takes off, uh, a company that's a market leader in reverse vending machines that okay. collect packaging like bottles and cans and glass and plastic made uh, and give, um, give the, those who uh, reverse vend um, credits or vouchers. So there are some of those companies around the, uh, which are, have been around for a long time, but are now going to scale. Um, and then of course, as I say, the established leaders, which are um, kind of um, raising the bar, if you like, for the, for the mainstream um, uh, economic actors. So uh, the Jupiter uh, Green focuses around things like clean energy, energy efficiency, the circular economy, as I mentioned, but also um, uh, environmental services, water, and for me, really importantly, sustainable agriculture, nutrition and health. Mm. In that agriculture space lie some of the solutions to the problems we face, including and especially uh, soil, water and biodiversity. Yes. So I'm very excited by, and I've, I mean, I've always believed in this company, but it's just so exciting to be in a company where other people are starting to say, uh, this looks interesting, <laughs> which is good. So it's in a good place. Yeah, it's great. I mean, one thing I do really like about this industry is the innovation you're seeing and at the amount of smaller companies that are backed by the, the, the fund managers. And yeah, it's really, really interesting to see and hear about what they're up to and how they will disrupt. Um, in general, though, how would you like to see the investment management community step up in terms of its commitment towards sustainability? Well, I suppose um, one of the things to say, first of all, is that I am, I am really encouraged that the speed with which the finance sector and the investment community is now moving. Okay, great. In many ways, it's moving faster than um, many of the um, uh, real economy, if you like, uh, companies. Oh, that's a bit unfair, but broadly speaking, and it's not at all surprising they're looking for to manage risk and seize opportunities so mm -hmm. things are moving and i've just been looking at a really interesting um net zero asset managers initiative which i know jupiter uh signed up to which is yep. aiming to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner and there are lots and lots of um initiatives out there which i think are starting to show just how seriously and quickly the sector can move but we know that the it's it's really quite hard uh, with the present disclosure of fund performances for uh, investors to understand and compare how their funds align with the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, lots, I mean, this it's really uh, the 
the way in which, uh, and all the attempts at the moment are very sort of patchy and non-standardized. Mm -hmm. And what we really need are simple, practical, reliable, outcome-based portfolio metrics. And this is something which the Institute at Cambridge, the team, the um, sustainable finance team at Cambridge are working on with a whole raft of major investment, investment companies, in fact, with an organization called one of their platforms called the Investment Leaders Group, where they're trying to develop robust methodologies in order for companies to be able to account for the extent to which their impact uh, is delivering outcomes, not ambition. Mm. A lot of the time we hear about, you know, um, we're creating jobs, but the question is, is this decent work? And we're, you know, we're taking carbon out of the economy, but how do you measure that? So things like, and there's a very interesting thing they're developing at the moment, a temperature score methodology, where they're trying to, where they're basing it on the underpinning science and methods of emissions projection and the distribution of carbon budgets to come up with a, um, a decision-making framework. So. I'm really interested to see just how much uh, that the investment community are now working more and more collaboratively with some of the cutting edge uh, um, academic thinking to develop things which are robust, evidence-based, science-based and long-term. Mm. So that's what I want to see more of, but I'm impressed that a, an, an elite number of uh, companies are really getting on top of this. Yeah, great. You can't see me. I'm nodding away here. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's great to see that um, we have that the industry has made some progress. But yes, there's a lot more work to do. Not far enough and not fast enough, but there, it's a start. <laughs> yes. And sooner or later, the, the, the reality is that this isn't any longer being driven um, out of the goodness of anyone's heart. This is increasingly an expectation. Mm. It is an expectation of... Um, uh, regulators an ex expectation of investors and it's an expectation of society so the, the, I don't want to say the noose is tightening but the, the room for, for maneuver uh, or avoidance is running out yeah completely there are lots of drivers now that is yeah they cannot this cannot be ignored okay and what would you say has been the most rewarding part of your career so far and how would you where do you feel you have made the, the biggest impact um i suppose when i look back on it now for me um uh the most rewarding thing for me has been um working with people who started out um perhaps started out perhaps sometimes people were, were um, told to come and um, work with us and sometimes people came to us with a degree of skepticism this is here in Cambridge a degree of skepticism about uh, what needed to be done and whether it was their responsibility the most rewarding thing for me has been to meet thousands of people over those 31 years many many of whom I'm still in touch with who have understood that this is something not just that they must do something about but they want to do something about you know, you, it's, I suppose it's kind of unleashing their, their sort of sense of citizens and parents in them and letting go of the fact that they are expected only to perform for their companies. They also have a social responsibility of a different kind. So I found it amazingly exciting because these are people who have immense power and influence. 
So working with people who, who can make a difference and then seeing the fact that they are willing to make a difference. And then working with younger students, people who are coming through our master's programs and just seeing how hungry they are to mm. be on the right side of this agenda and actually how determined they are. The sense that this coming generation of employees are not going to sit by passively uh, while we carry on trashing the planet and destroying people's livelihoods. So um, that's for me, I couldn't ask for more. I feel immensely privileged to have been part of that process. Mm, I can say well, that that seems totally re rewarding. Um, okay, well, my final question is what's what's next for you? Uh, any new projects coming, at, coming up or any other key areas of focus? Um, well, I'm just seeing through at the moment a uh, completion of something that I started while I was still director, which is the, um, uh, it is a, a, an amazing uh, low carbon uh, retrofit of a 1930s telephone exchange in Cambridge, which will become uh, my, the Institute's new headquarters. And it's going to be a world first on many fronts. Wow. Uh, unbelievable what we've been able to do in terms of using a whole range of standards, BRIAM, Passive House, the World Standard to get both environmental and uh, social standards, uh, the combination of which are the highest of any building in the UK that we know of at the moment, and driving down both embodied and operational carbon right down to, I mean, we haven't got it to zero, but it's astonishing what we have been able to do, and to use it as an exemplar of what we can do in buildings in this country, many of which are going to need to be refitted. So that's one of the big projects that we're hoping to move into that at the end of the year. And the other really exciting thing I'm working on and have been working on for the last couple of years is a project with the uh, Whittle Laboratory, which is um, a, a laboratory in Cambridge, um, one of the world's most academically successful propulsion and power laboratories, where they have uh, developed a method of rapid technology development, working with academia and industry, and their ambition is to reach net zero carbon flight by 2035. And when I think about the implications of that, um, I'm working with, we've had, it's been, it's not just fun and exciting and interesting, it's, it's a driving ambition, because if we mm. don't get our flight um, down to net zero by 2050, then all those trips home to South Africa, for me personally, and the things that people love to do around the world are just not going to be um, morally or socially acceptable in a world that's uh, uh, under extreme climate pressure. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited. The Whit Laboratory, you should look it up. It's just incredible, led by a, a brilliant Cambridge academic. And my view is we're going to get there. We just need to raise 25 million to do so. Mm. Uh, that's, I will uh, look that up. That sounds amazing. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure we, we've, the past year has highlighted um, how much we do rely on those those trips around the world, as you mentioned. Yes, and the much, the how much we are missing those as well, especially have, if you have got family abroad or living elsewhere. So yes, I really hope that that goes all goes ahead as well successfully. Well, um, Polly, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Uh, not at all. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Natalie. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.